Today I am chatting to a man with an incredible resume. Phil Cleary is a former teacher, politician, author, radio presenter, footy commentator, and a VFA legend as a player and coach. Played over 200 games of footy for Coburg in Victoria. A shout out as well to Paradise Mazda. It's business as usual. Go and see Rob and the friendly staff for massive end of financial year deals on a wide range of new and demos. Welcome to Legends with Bevo. Thanks to the Holdy Hotel, Coopers, and Anytime Fitness Glenelg. Well, Phil Cleary, great to have you on Legends with Bevo. Um, now, let's get straight into it. Back in the late 1980s, um, you went through a terrible tragedy. You lost your sister, your dear sister. I was very close to your heart through um, what was just a horrible situation whereby her ex-partner uh, murdered her. And one of the real positives from this, though, has been your incredible work you've been doing in terms of um, anti-domestic violence and going out and doing campaigning with this. Uh, talk to us through this all and, and uh, I guess the situation and, and how you're going with changing these laws. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Bevan, because the murder of my sister occurred right in the middle of a, a, an interesting and very successful time in football for me. You in, in South Australia, and of course we go elsewhere with the internet, of course, people know of the domestic comps the SANFL in South Australia, for example. Well, I was a member of the Coburg Football Club in Victoria in the VFA, which was a robust competition. We'd played in a grand final in 1986 at the Junction Oval, which is now the centre of cricket in Victoria. Uh, we lost the grand final in 86. I was playing coach. I was ordered off in the grand final. Pretty remarkable. Found not guilty at the tribunal. So I had that terrible experience. Then a year later we lost Vicky. And then ironically, the next year I won the premiership as a coach of Coburg and then won it again in 89. And those premierships occurred at the famous Windy Hill ground, you know, which everyone in football knows. So it's kind of bizarre almost that we get 86, 87, Vicky, 88, 89. And then I end up in federal parliament in 92. But, you know, of course, the murder of a loved one, a family member, your beautiful sister. Uh, Vicky was the first-born girl for mum after four boys, one of whom had died uh, after 24, 48 hours of life. So Vicky was special. It was a, an horrendous event. I was teaching on the day when I, I received the phone call to say that she'd been stabbed and we went to the hospital and after several hours, the doctor told us that uh, Vicky had been murdered, or sorry, that Vicky had died, and it was shocking. Uh, you know, dealing with mum's grief, my parents' grief, our own uh, shock and dismay, and um, incredu it was incre we were incredulous. It was just hard to believe that this could happen. Now, I should say, I'd been to university and, and read a lot of feminist tracts, before that. So it wasn't as if I didn't understand feminist critiquing of male culture or of uh, patriarchy. I did. I, I understood these questions. So Vicky's murder and then the subsequent trial um, did not bring new understandings to me about these big questions, but it brought it home personally. Uh, and yes, I've been campaigning ever since. One of the, one of the bright spots, I suppose, is that we brought down the law of provocation. And for those who don't know, without being too academic about it, there was a law called provocation. It still exists in New South Wales, 
that said that enabled a man who killed a woman and essentially it was used by men to argue that he'd lost control because of the woman's behavior Keogh the killer argued that in court it was disgraceful he killed Vicky while she was parking her car for work at 8 a.m. on the morning of 26 August 1987 she'd been separated for three months he should never have been entitled to a provocation defense but worse still the jury found him not guilty of murder and he went to jail for three years and 11 months. So naturally, I was outraged. My mother and family, my siblings were outraged. And I went on to campaign and we brought the law down. And I think it's fair to say I played a major role in Australia in changing the, the narrative and discussion around violence towards women. So my sister drove that because of her spirit and the great character she was. Well done to you, mate. That's um, that's an incredible achievement. Obviously, you can't, we can never bring back your sister, but um, that's certainly something that I'm sure she'd be very proud of looking down on you. So well done to you and everyone involved. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now let's move on to your, your, your political career because um, in terms of politics, because it was quite interesting. Um, you mentioned before that you're involved with politics and you actually took over from the great Bob Hawke. Uh, he resigned. And you became the House of Representatives and you're also a Federal Minister for, for Wills. Uh, talk to us through this and, and I guess your relationship with Bob. Well, it's kind of funny, you know. I met Bob Hawke a number of times throughout the midnight, mid to late 80s because he was the Federal Member of Wills and Coburg was in his electorate. And he became the equivalent of our number one ticket holder. So I first met him probably in 1980 just before he nominated for Wills or became the member. And I met him at luncheons in the 80s. And he was at the grand final in 1988 when we beat Williamstown at Windy Hill. He was in the rooms before the game oh. when I spoke to the players. And I've mentioned this before. When I spoke to the players, I mentioned Vicky and Vicky's memory and how we had as a family endured great pain. And maybe, maybe here was a chance to erase some of the pain. Anyway, um, so there was Hawke in the conversation. After the game, Bob Hawke came into the rooms oh. and we were celebrating. You can imagine it's in the Windy Hill rooms, the famous Essendon ground. It's jam-packed with people. Can you believe a Prime Minister these days would walk into a room like that? No way known. But he's there. And we speak to Jowl, you know, and I've got this great photograph and people will see it on my website and elsewhere where Bob Hawke's this close to me. And I tell you this, Bevan, and it's not, a, this is a, every word I'm saying is true. He said, you know, Phil, your speech was so good before the game, we should pre-select you for, the, for a seat in the parliament. How about that? He actually said that to me, words to that effect. And lo and behold, uh, four years later, in 1992, I won his seat as an independent after he resigned. So you wouldn't believe it, would you? <laughs> what a story. That's incredible. Um, and then... Now, tell me if I've got. Uh, tell me if I got this incorrect. But I heard as well that more controversy came up because well, we'll talk about your teaching a little bit later on. But then um, you weren't able to do this because of teaching or something to do with the education department. Is that correct? I sat in the parliament from uh, April until about November, 
and a bloke, a local bloke took a case out against me at the High Court, petitioned the High Court to say that I was ineligible because I was, as a teacher, I had an office of profit under the Crown. It's an old clause, dates back to English law, and it's absurd, and it was, it was designed to stop the King appointing his own people to the Parliament. But there was me, an independent member, a teacher on leave without pay when I was elected, uh, when the when the poll was counted, and I was ruled ineligible to sit in the parliament. So oh. they 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 banished me from the parliament, ruled me ineligible. So when people talk about the courts or talk about the high court, just go and look at Sykes versus Cleary and have a look at how absurd that decision was. And if you want to trust the courts, good luck. Uh, but anyway. They, they dismissed me from the parliament, but I won the election again the next year in 93 uh, at a general election and I went back as the, as the member for Wills. Unfortunately, I lost in 96, but only after they redistributed the electoral boundaries and made it almost impossible for me to win. Now, we can, we can reflect on why they did that. We asked them to put the boundaries one way and they didn't, but after I was um, defeated in, in uh, 96... Or the next year, some years after, they did actually accept our plan for the redistribution and went south of the electorate, which would have been better for me, but it was too late by then. What an interesting story, Phil. Um, once again, it just keeps uh, keeps getting interesting by the word. We, we obviously, your journey is very, very interesting, and we're looking forward to um, hearing more about that down the track. But certainly, something that you've been working on at the moment, and we're again looking forward to uh, when this actually comes out is a podcast to do with World War II, a documentary. Um, it's called Gladys and the Brunswick Boys. Tell us more about this and, I guess, um, how your involvement and, and what makes this, such, so, I guess, so close to your heart. Well, see that photo? How's it look? Pretty good, yes. <laughs> well, that's a blown-up version of a photograph that my mum had. And my grandfather, my mum father is just there in the front row that's a POW camp photograph in Austria taken probably in 1941 I saw that photo as a kid well I think I was a kid or certainly in my teenage years my mum showed me the photograph I became rather interested in that that story and it turned out that my grandfather had been captured in Greece in 1941 with a couple of other Brunswick boys which is where I live and where my grandmother and my grandfather lived and my mother and father were married in Brunswick <clears throat> but I I saw this photo and I thought this is amazing so in time I tracked the people in that photograph connected to other stories also my dad grew up in Brunswick and he played football for a mob called South Brunswick. And as a, in my teenage years, he, he used to say to us, yeah, we had a bloke there, a trainer called Jackie O'Brien. He was a war hero. And I used to hear the stories and go, oh, that's fascinating, Dad. But in time, I went looking for Jackie O'Brien. So I discovered that Dad's story was right. Now, Jackie isn't in this photo. He wasn't a POW, but he fought at Al Alamein and he was one of the Brunswick boys a friend of my grandfather. So my grandfather and his two mates, POWs in Austria. Jackie O'Brien goes to El Alamein, wins the Distinguished Conduct Medal as a 19-year-old. Unbelievable. Courage. Incredible stuff. 
but he dies in his four, 44, along with my grandfather, 49, and my grandfather's best mate, 47. Every one of them alcoholics. So over the last few years, I've been researching the story. I've been to Austria, been to Greece, travelled across Crete. And, you know, Bevan, it's just astounding when you dig deeper to find out how much these men were affected by war, you know, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, post-traumatic stress. We're talking about it now. So many of these men were deeply impacted by war, and my grandfather was one of them. So, yeah, a, a remarkable story. Can't wait to hear that podcast. And again, very, very interesting. Um, speaking of very interesting, your football career has been one of certain interest. Um, you, you played over 200 games in the VFA uh, with Coburg and then you went on and coached as well. And wait for it, there's still more. 30 years you've been involved as a commentator in the box, uh, 20 of those and then 10 ground level as well with the VFL. Um, what an incredible career you've had so far, Phil. Um, talk to us through it and I guess some of the highlights. Yeah, it's funny, Bevan, because I grew up in Coburg near the Merry Creek. Now, you know, people in other states might think Merry Creek. I think most people will get a sense of the Merry Creek, you know, as a famous creek that runs down towards the, the Yarra and the Indigenous people played football there, no doubt, on the plains of the Merry Creek. As a kid, we used to go over to the Merry Creek because there was a big farm, Mackay, a bloke called Mackay, Farmer Mackay or Farmer Mackay. He had a big uh, uh, paddock of, of ground next to the creek, and it's still there today. The paddocks are still there. They have not been built on. Fortunately, we've saved the paddocks, but he had a house on top of the uh, hill. Anyway, there was where I really started football, kicking the ball around on the plains of the Mary Creek under Farmer Mackay's house. And then we played footy in the street. I went to a school, St. Joseph's Pascaval, the school with a pretty ordinary record on abuse of kids. Uh, but football was part of my life. And suddenly there was I one day, I'm at the Coburg Football Club. I end up there, a bloke knocks on the door and says, oh, Phil, we'd like to sign you up. And it was 1974, 75. So yeah, I went to Coburg. And in those days, like the SANFL, the domestic comp was big, you know. Channel 10 telecast, thousands of people at games, grand finals, 20, 30,000 people, you know. And um, I'm playing in this VFA comp, big crowd, sometimes 10,000 people playing Port Melbourne, who are like your port, the old Port Adelaide side, you know, old working class. And <laughs> it was a brilliant time. And so, and I... I now reflect and I'm going to do a podcast, a VFA podcast about being at all the grounds, uh, what it's like, at, what it was like to be at different grounds. So I'll go to Coburg and tell a story and I'll go to Brunswick and I'll go to Port Melbourne and I'll go to Williamstown, just like your SANFL people would go to Norwood and Glenelg and tell their stories. I'm going to do that because... What was fascinating about that old VFA was the grounds. Every ground was different. You know, the smell was different. The noise was different. The abuse was different. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. And anyway, I had, I had played in a premiership in 1979, 20-odd thousand people at the Junction Oval against Geelong West. It was a thriller. And uh, they were coached by Billy Goggin, the famous, oh. legendary Geelong footballer. 
play. You know, I played with Polly Palmer. Anyway, then, then a decade later, I coached Coburg to back-to-back flags, 88-89, you know. So those were wonderful times. And again, of course, came at the time of the tragedy of Vicky and they added just a little touch of light at a dark time in my life and my family's life. And I remember so well those premierships, being with mum, mum on the ground with me after the premierships, you know, mum talking to mum and uh, having that great moment and mum and dad, of course, of the celebration. Uh, but, yeah, footy was, footy was great. I, I did love it. And it sort of, you know, gave me a platform in a way because I had a public life. It enabled me, probably was critical to me getting elected in Wills because I'd played football in Coburg. I was known. I had. I was known as a person with politics um, and that gave me some trajectory and that was probably critical to my anti-violence campaigning because having a bloke who'd played football talk about violence against women was different. And it was always going to have some traction. So footy, I loved it. Big games. I've been collecting old tapes. Uh, so I've got all these old videos and uh, put them into DVDs and I'm, I'm downloading it electronically. And wait till you see some of those. <laughs> I heard you're a bit of a, a, bit of a rough one on the field. You're, you're a gentleman oh. off the field, but I heard that you had a bit of white line fever field. <laughs> well, look, I've got to say, Bevan, I never, ever uh, punched anyone, king hit anyone, didn't do any of that. But I was a bit of a, a, a shoulder hitting, you know, shirt fronter. In the old game, you could use this side of your body, you know. And I was pretty strong. And I, I stood about 176 centimetres. So I wasn't a big man, but I was strongly well built. And I could hit pretty hard. I had good closing speed. So when I look back, I did see a couple of incidents where... They look ordinary, you know, the shirt front. And I'm glad we got rid of it. My sons play footy. And one of my sons said to me, you know, Dad, he said you'd get six weeks for that today at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of um, my, my next question, um, how the footy landscape has changed, obviously, since you started playing to now. It's been quite incredible. And with the introduction of women's footy as well, um, how do you sort of, view footy these days and, and with the instruction of the women's footy and I guess equality as well being such a big thing, Phil. Yeah. Look, I'll just say one thing. I thought you were going to ask me, I thought you said uh, something about the body. It's funny, after all these years, and I'm 67, I'm still running. So my body's held up really well. I mean, I creak and I strain a bit at times and uh, shoulders and stuff and I get stiff when I run. But fortunately, I'm still running. Lots of blokes my age and blokes I've coached have found it more difficult. So I make that point, not to brag that I can still run, but that the footy does take a lot out of you, you know. I think we reflect on that years later, that it is it has been physically punishing as a game. And we need to reflect on that. And we're discussing the concussion predicament now in a way that we didn't before and we have to address. It's a serious matter. But of the game, look, I don't think the modern game is as beautiful or as artistically attractive as the old game. Uh, The players are highly skilled, do not get me wrong. They kick the ball well, they catch it beautifully, they run, they're fast, they're strong. But the clutter of the game I don't think shows the game at its best. I think the old positional game 
was was more poetic and more uh, uh, picturesque in that you got players on players in sections of the ground. It was like seeing a vignette or a photograph, you know, the high mark. That was beautiful, beautiful part of the game. And I think that was, that was in, easy for people to watch. I think the clutter of the game has affected the game. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. Many, many people are looking for rule changes, aren't they, to free the game up. And yeah. it's funny, you know, I think in a, way the women, yeah. and in a way the women's game is, I think, a bit attractive to people because it's a bit like the older game. It's, it's not quite as cluttered. You know, and they are playing 16 aside, which is the old VFA, 16 players on a team. But I think the women's games, gee, it's improved. The last two years, it's been exponential growth uh, in, in, in uh, quality of the game. So these are great changes. And I must say, women playing the game has added a really important dimension to the social relations of community life and domestic football clubs. In local footy clubs now, we can have better discussions around gender equality and about respectful relationships and violence against women because we have to have the discussions about respectful relationships because women are in the clubs now in big numbers. In yeah. the old game, they weren't there. Well, they were. They were, you know, they were washing the jumpers and looking after the canteen. But now they're right in the epicentre of the game and they're playing and that's been a really important element of the campaign around violence towards women, I think. Yeah, well said. And it's incredible the, the amount of numbers around Australia of women that are playing footy now is just phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, it used to be all about women only playing netball and basketball and these sort of sports and what have you. But now, you know, the chance to be able to play footy and obviously I haven't got kids or anything, but if I have a daughter, I'd love to see her be able to play footy and, and this sort of thing going forward. And, you know, speaking to my sister, she would have made a great footballer and won her regrets is not be able to play because, you know, she was too, too old now. But, you know, obviously only bring it in the last few years. Well, without a doubt, um, I, I'd, I'd say um, one cautionary note is there have been times when I think the commentators have made too much about women being robust and tackling like the blokes and being physical. When we're moving away from that, it was almost like uh, compensation uh, to... Uh, to, to uh, compensate for the, um, the the differences in the game or to, to prove that women could play the game, they had to prove that they were as physical as the men. And I, don't, I think that sometimes has just detracted from what we should be talking about, which is the quality of the skill. And uh, I think women are improving that and the game is looking much better. I, I could look in and watch the women's game in recent times and I've thought to myself gee the skill level is really improving it's a good thing it's changed the nature of discussion that to me that's a bigger question the way it's changed the nature of discussion around gender relations I think that's been really significant you know women are now appearing talking about the game on equal terms with men that's that's bringing a form of gender equality to the landscape to the public discussion that's really important. Yeah, well said. And it's unbelievable. Like I remember going to a game live before the coronavirus situation here in Adelaide. It was um, the Blues versus the Crows. And I could not believe this, the skill level certainly has improved. And how hard those girls hit. I wouldn't want to be out there. Yeah. I'd get slammed. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's lovely to see people at the local club. 
at the local ground. It's a reminder about your sense of place. And, you, you know, people in South Australia have a strong sense of place. They know something about their history. You know, you have a very strong German and European a background, and, and in football, a very strong community sense. The SANFL was built on local clubs and the local grounds, and we had that in Victoria with the AFL, VFL, AFL, that's gone. But, but when the women's game has taken us back, hasn't it, to the local grounds, and people are saying, gee, I remember this. It's beautiful. Yeah, well said. Um, now, something else you, I don't know, if you have, I don't know how possibly you have the time to be able to do this, Bill. You're unbelievable. You're obviously good at time management. Something else you've been doing is writing books. Now, you've written three and you've got your fourth one in manuscript at the moment. Talk to us through this and what the books are all about. Uh, well, where are they? Oh, they're here somewhere. Um, I think, yes, I, I wrote, that was a really important book. That was about, Vicky and the criminal justice system. But before that, I wrote a book about uh, called Cleary Independent, which was about growing up in Coburg and it, it included politics and had a chapter on Vicky and the court case. Um, and then I wrote a book uh, about the murder of Julie Ramage in 2003. That caused me a lot of grief because we got sued for defamation. The book I'm working on now looks at the history of violence against women. I've sort of tracked how the media and how the courts were dealing with the violence back in the 1960s and 70s. So I'm trying to put the contemporary violence in some sort of context. Also, I'm looking at the impact on my mother. When mum died, she left behind a couple of diaries. We don't know whether she meant to or not, but we found them and a letter she wrote to Vicky. And when I found those diaries and the letter, I was driven by the idea of representing mum's experience more than I had previously. So I'm trying to grapple with that in the manuscript as well and tell a bit more of a story about Vicky the person. So that's the book. You know, there's lots of other projects. I'd, I'd really like to write something about football, a, a, a football book. I, I probably want to write something about the Brunswick boys, a story, you know. But um, I love writing. That's been part of my life. I think when I was at school, I enjoyed writing and I like writing and storytelling. So I think, um, and I love having this conversation with you, Bevan, you know, about uh, history. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and I'm loving hearing all about it, mate. Um, could talk all day. And um, I must admit, I've got a very, uh, I guess, all of my family are teachers, so mum and dad, uh, my brother and sister, and my wife as well. So I'm on the black sheep of the family. And um, you've been a teacher yourself for a long period of time. Talk us through that, Phil, and I guess the, the ups and downs of being a teacher and how things have changed. Well, look, I went from university studying political science, philosophy, sociology, grappling with what we thought were the big ideas in the world. And I went out to Sunshine West as a secondary teacher in 1976. And Sunshine West was the western suburbs and it was working class and it was pretty tough. But, gee, I, I had a wonderful time there up until from 76 till 83. Uh, I met some great kids, taught 
wonderful, we'll talk with wonderful people who were full of energy. It was hard going, but it made you kind of creative. And I should say on the teaching front, uh, we're, we're having a big discussion around teachers now, aren't we? And people are realising how difficult it is with schools not operating, maybe starting to realise how important teachers are in their lives, aren't they? Yes. Teachers are. It's funny. My, my um, I draw a parallel with my interest in history. I was teaching a lot of history at school, but this storytelling became a key component of my teaching. So I used to take kids out to old cemeteries in the countryside because the school had a camp at Hepburn Springs, about 100 kilometres, 110, 20 kilometres um, out, of, out of Melbourne. And I had some of the best experiences teaching in that form. Like I'd take kids to cemeteries and they'd study 19th century gravestones and that, that would tell them so much about life, infant mortality, immigration, uh, mortality generally, the wealth of people by way of the quality of their stone and quirky stories about how people lived and how they died. That was one of the most important experiences of my teaching and I'd I'd say to any teacher today, if you're teaching history, take kids out into the field, take them places, you know, take them to real places, tell them real stories, and it brings history alive. And I reckon I, I've bumped into kids who said that was really important. I was in a pub one time down in Y River, and a young bloke, oh, no, when I say young bloke, he was a young bloke at the time, he came up to me, he said, G'day, Phil, how are you? I'm so-and-so. You taught me, he said, you... You caused me to love history. And I thought, how good's that? And I was at a funeral one time in a cemetery and there was a bloke who was a grave digger and he said the same thing. He was digging, grave digging. He put his shovel down, stuck it in the dirt and he said, hey, Bill, got to tell you, I love the way you taught me history. Oh, no. Oh. And he went on, he said, and you taught me to trust unions. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm often, because I'm a bit of a known person, I can be places and so I could be somewhere, you know, in the Vic Market I was one time, I think, or somewhere, and there was someone working in the, you know, selling fish. And she said to me, hey, g'day, Phil, do you remember me? And I thought, well, there were about 1,300 kids at the school and I'm not sure, and I always have to say to them, hey, were you a good kid or a bad kid? there's a fair chance i'll remember you but um so i'm often bumping i often bump into people and i think over the journey i i've been in i've been happy that i've found lots of kids who've been who said you were a good teacher so but if i was it had so much to do with the fact that my mum and dad were great teachers they weren't teachers my mum didn't go out to school after she left didn't get educated, but she was a smart woman, thoughtful woman. My dad was a butcher, but they could tell stories about history that were just riveting. And I learned history through them. And so the Brunswick Boys, for example, is a product of mum and dad's storytelling. So all the families listening in and grappling with COVID-19, is it 19 or 16? Yeah, you're right, 19, yep. COVID-19, um, Tell your stories. Sit down and share stories because we'll all be in, we might come out of COVID-19 a bit more enlightened. Yeah, I love it. I, I love the idea as well because uh, I must say I wasn't the biggest fan of history, but the idea of um, getting out there and, and engaging with, with the community and, and seeing, yeah, seeing our history and stuff um, is a wonderful idea. And, 
yeah, I'll, if I ever speak to a history teacher, I'll make sure I tell them that one, Phil. <laughs> well, can I just say, Bevan, I'll give you an example. If you go to the Dalesford Cemetery, 110 kilometres from Melbourne, there's a stone in the Dalesford Cemetery where there are four children who died. And I put this on my website, on a Facebook page. So people, if they look up my Facebook page, they'll see the, I think, one of the stones. And I raised the question, we think about COVID and the problems it's created. Wind the clock back to the 19th century and look at how flu and other illnesses swept through communities, you know, and children, uh, infant mortality rates were so high. There were four children in that family, the Phillips family in Dalesford, who died within about a month, you know, like they were just children, different ages. And, and I said, I took kids out to that and I said to kids that I was teaching, have a look at that. And they immediately think, oh, gee, that's an interesting question. It's about health questions, about social questions, political questions, how we're dealing with these issues. So it's a great way to bring history to life. And wherever I travel, if I, if I travel somewhere and I'm in Ireland, for example, where my people came from, I go to a cemetery, I'll just stop and go, I'm mesmerised. I can find graves and then I go and research them online, you know, and I think, God, look at that. I've seen this bloke stone in a cemetery in the west of Ireland and I find out that he'd gone and fought in the Great War, he'd been in America, he'd gone back to Ireland, fought in the Great War, and you think, God almighty, I now know this bloke. I'm looking at his stone and I know so much about him. <laughs> fascinating stuff. I love it. Um, hey, speaking of fascinating stuff, Phil, I'm a bit of a fan of uh, SEN. I'm really glad now they've got SEN SA over here. So we get to hear some great shows over there in Victoria as well. And uh, one of the shows that you're a part of is with Andy Marr from the front bar, of course, as well. And uh, Bob Murphy, who's doing a great job with Fox Sports. Um, you've got a segment every couple of weeks. Talk us through that and uh, what you do there. Well, I've known Andy for a long time. We bump into each other over the journey. And, and I can't say I, I've known Bob. I think I bumped into Bob through the VFL when I was broadcasting but it's like it's funny in the footy world even if you don't bump into someone you know them it's like it, when you're doing footy for a long time I, I could walk into someone down the street and uh, have never met them but it's like we've known each other forever you know so it's a bit like with Bob Murphy it's like we've known each other since we were kids you know because it's like football has this great capacity to kind of unify it's a, it creates a platform, a shared experience from which you can generate all forms of discussion. I love Bob. I'll tell you what I love about Bob's approach. It comes from down Bush, Warrigal Way, I think it is, down in the Gippsland area. And so if you're talking to Bob Murphy, he's got a really good feel for where the game came from, you know, where the local characters in a local footy team, he still has deep respect for that. And I, and, and I think... That's really important. And the beauty of Andy is Andy's very curious about the world. You know, he's, he's really interested in questions and he's not, an, he's not autocratic in his thinking, but he's quite passionate. And I think the beauty of uh, Andy Murray is he doesn't try to be that which he's not. He, he, he sort of approaches footy like um, a barricade. But then a barracker who's got to make judgments about the game, and I love that about it. So we, I go on every few weeks, and we have a great yarn. And I was on there the other week talking about footballers who'd gone to war, and that's a fascinating story. And I want to turn that into a podcast too, because <laughs> there are some wonderful stories to be told there. Did you know that in 1916, 
a team of Australian footballers played an exhibition game in London in front of 3,000 people? 1916. I know yeah. been, there's been footy over in London in recent years, but no, not, not that far back. <laughs> no one talks about it. I don't know on Anzac Day if they ever talked about it when they do the big Essendon Collingwood game. Well, I tell you what, I don't think so. And I sent Eddie Maguire a, a, a message the other week and he was very interested. I like it. I think that's uh, definitely got legs and um, hope to find some people in Adelaide to uh, get involved in that one as well for you, Phil. Well, there were people, I'm, I, I reckon there were there was someone, I can't put my finger on this, but I looked up the names of the blokes. I've got a feeling there was someone from the Adelaide comp who played in that game, and I'll check it out and I'll send you an email sometime. Yeah, do it for sure. I'll chase up and help you out. <laughs> um, I, like many others, um, are absolutely loving hearing your stories today, Phil. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, and I look forward to meeting you in person and, and seeing one of your, uh, your speaking events. Uh, you've got a relationship as well with a, a mutual friend of mine, Scott Kennedy, uh, from, from Tal Talking Talent. How do you and Scott know each other? Where's that all come about? Yeah, we, we bumped into each other somewhere and um, I got talking and I understand a, a Scott's directorship of Talking Talent. And, and over the years, um, I've never bothered having someone look after my speaking arrangements and I just said to Scott look let's talk about that um, because I do want to go on the out and on the campaign uh, nationwide and I do a lot of talking around the anti-violence theme in the media and I do go out and speak and I was up in northern Victoria recently talking at Mansfield and other places and it was a great experience and productive, I think, and I, and I was in Sydney recently receiving an award and, and I've been elsewhere. Um, so I, Scott is kind of going to look after that uh, part of my life and we're going to talk about a few other projects, the Brunswick Boys, the film uh, and podcasting and so people can find references to me through Talking Talent with Scott Kennedy and Scott's really good. Well, as you know, he does a great trivia program doesn't he absolutely yeah i've been lucky enough to be hosting it the last couple of years we're trying to push it more in adelaide um unfortunately not at the moment with the pubs being closed down but that's something i've missed is actually the pubs being closed is seeing all my trivia friends and uh, the great people down at west oak hotel shout out to them um now scotty does a wonderful job and he's actually been doing online trivia as well every wednesday night people can get involved in which is wonderful so yes i'm often i, I i've been on the phone to him and he says yeah, I'm just about to go into um, writing up my questions for the trivia night. <laughs> Very good. I say, hey, I've got a trivia question for you. Try this one. <laughs> trivia. Australian soldiers at war. I'll bet no one gets this one. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have some rippers, no doubt. Um, so obviously yeah. uh, we can find more about yourself on uh, philcleary.com. Is that correct? And anywhere else we can um, hear more about you, my website, philcleary.com.au, I'm trying to just polish that up. If you know someone who'd like to do a freebie for me and polish up my website, send them, tell them to send me an email, philcleary at bigpond.com. And I have <laughs> Facebook and I uh, have a YouTube site where I bang a few, uh, a few videos. I'm going to put a couple more on there uh, now, now that I've been talking to the illustrious Bevan in uh, Adelaide. Is it Adelaide we're talking? It is indeed, yep. In, uh, in Adelaide, it's a beautiful, nice sunny day today, 21 degrees, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a cracking day here. And what about you? Are you in Brunswick? 
Yes, well, I'm, it's nice. I'm looking out the window and um, being a keen photographer as I am, uh, I, and I've been in Adelaide, I thought it's a beautiful place to photograph all those churches, just a bit like Europe, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, well said. Um, well, Phil Cleary, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today on Legends with Bebo. I've really enjoyed this. And like I said, I, I can't wait to meet you in person and, and chat more and hear more about your stories. And um, keep up the great work. And I'll definitely um, share all your stuff about your podcast and everything on my Facebook page. And, yeah, look forward to, to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you much, Bevan. And can I ask, did you take that photograph behind you? I didn't. It's actually uh, actually the wife, but I have been to the Eiffel Tower myself. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful spot. <laughs> wife's, that's your wife's photograph? It is, yes. Yeah, I can't take any credit for that one. So, <laughs> my regards, as a, as a serious photographer, I'm looking at that thinking, you've got a beautiful backdrop. That's rather nice. Instead of all those punsy people who want to put all the books on show in a bookcase, <laughs> behind them just to show that they're very intellectual and intelligent <laughs> and well read <laughs> just like i've got the plant here as well mate to show a bit of gardening as well <laughs> very nice <laughs> thank well, you mate speak, speak to you soon all the best to you you too thanks phil